I've been on the road with John MacArthur a number of times over the course of my life in ministry. There's some things that never change. MacArthur is the wheelman. He always drives. And when he drives, it's with what some would call a heavy foot. The other thing about MacArthur is he's old school. He's not going to waze his way or Google Maps his way. He knows the way. He doesn't ask for directions. He doesn't need a map. He goes where he's driving to. And that was the case on a road trip with MacArthur just a few weeks ago. It was a Tuesday. John, his wife Patricia, and I were cruising along the 99 freeway, heading to a funeral in a small town three hours north of Los Angeles. There's hardly anything to see along the way. A few munching cows, a lot of farmland, and the city of Bakersfield, which is far less compelling than either crops or herds of cattle. MacArthur had a microphone. I brought a pair of headphones and turned on a portable recording device that has become my constant companion the last few years. To California's Central Valley and back, MacArthur chauffeured me while I asked him questions about his life, his past, his future, his legacy, and his convictions. As we begin Season 2 of the MacArthur Center podcast, you, dear listener, are going to hear the 99 freeway in the background during this first episode. And you're going to discover, as I did on that long, nondescript stretch of California Highway, how John MacArthur's convictions were formed, and what he learned about the church and pastoral ministry when he was young. In Season 1 of the MacArthur Center podcast, we looked at John MacArthur's life, how he became a pastor, how he shepherds his flock, and how he thinks about ministry. If season one, The Expositor, answered the question, who is John MacArthur? Season two seeks to answer the question, what influenced John and how has he influenced the church and those who will come after him? In other words, how did God use the past to form MacArthur and how will history remember the man? We're calling this season The Entrusted, the convictions and legacy of John MacArthur. And as we look again at John's ministry, we're going to find out how God equips preachers and all Christians who have a singular desire to take the gospel entrusted to them and entrust it to the next generation. So, let's hit the road. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, and this is season two of the podcast from the Center, The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur.
During the first leg of that road trip from Los Angeles to Bakersfield, John and I talked about a question that seems simple but can actually be quite complicated. Where did MacArthur come from? Every Christian has a theological heritage, a stream of influence. What was MacArthur's? Was he a product of a denomination, a certain seminary, a religious movement? When you need answers, you turn to Wikipedia, which is a trustworthy source that anyone can add to. And if you ask Wikipedia, it says that John MacArthur is a Reformed Protestant. That's not a bad description, but it's not ideal either. Yes, John believes in the Reformation doctrines of salvation, popularly called the Solas, but he doesn't baptize babies, which you typically do if you're a card-carrying member of the Reformed community. John's also not part of any denomination, though W.A. Criswell, a well-known Southern Baptist preacher from a former generation, once accused MacArthur of a certain affiliation. We were having this conversation one night and he was talking to me and he said, uh, now, son, he said, uh, no, boy, he called me boy. He said, this is a few years ago, he said, boy, he said, um, <clears throat> he said, do, do people who join your church have to be real Christians? I said, yes, sir. He said, do people who join your church have to be baptized? I said, yes, sir. He said, do you baptize people by putting them all the way in the water? Yes, sir. He said, boy, you are a Baptist. <laughs> okay. So what is MacArthur? Is he an evangelical? Well, that depends on what you mean by evangelical. Today, the term has been politicized. In surveys, men and women who say they're part of the movement reject doctrines that every evangelical would believe. I honestly don't like those surveys because I think they're revealing in that a third of evangelicals uh, think Jesus was not God, but he's a created being by God. When you say that's what evangelicals believe, you just created a new kind of evangelicalism. So what, what that, the effect on me is that's tragic. Those aren't evangelicals. Those are heretics. The effect on everybody else is, oh, I, I could be an evangelical because I don't believe he's God either. So now you have just widened the tent and they give those questions and give you a percentage of surveys. And what those surveys actually do is recreate a false form of Christianity in people's minds. You would think that they'd be as discerning as we are and say, wow, that's a tragedy. But the undiscerning person is going to say, hey, I can be one of those. And you, you wind up with a Trojan horse. Evangelical is a term now that, that's being much disputed as to what exactly it means because it's taken on a political connotation in much of the major news. That's the voice of George Marsden. He's an author, professor emeritus at Notre Dame, and the OG historian of American evangelicalism. His biography of Jonathan Edwards is essential reading. It's one of my personal favorites. 
And his book, Fundamentalism and American Culture, is a brilliant look at how Christians have shaped America and how the country has shaped them. When I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Marsden a few weeks ago, we talked about the nature of evangelicalism. When they say evangelical, they mean something necessarily political, but for people who are evangelical, it means believing a certain set of gospel doctrines about the authority of the Bible and the uh, work of Christ on the cross and the necessity of uh, regeneration, conversion, etc. And that term is becoming a bit, maybe more than a bit, slippery as a designator. Here's John MacArthur in an interview last year talking about the dilemma that Dr. Marsden just described and what to do about it. Well, euangelizo, it means to preach the gospel. It's a good word, but we have to keep changing words. Um, R.C. Sproul and I used to talk about this a lot. We, we'd be on a golf course and he'd say, Johnny Mac, he'd say, we got to come up with a new word because evangelical is no good anymore. It's been co-opted by all kinds of people. So one, one day he said, I got it. We're going to be imputationists. I said, that's not going to work, R.C. They're going to think we're cutting off people's limbs. No, that's... Yeah, he said, you're probably right. So I think he went to heaven without a word. Yeah. You know, we never got, we never got that conversation finished. We're still trying to find a word. So if MacArthur isn't entirely comfortable with the term evangelical, would he embrace the term fundamentalist? Plenty of people on the internet have called him a fundamentalist, but that's also a label he'd reject. For much of that car ride, John and I talked about his tenuous relationship with fundamentalism and how the early movement intersected with his father's ministry. So before we talk about that movement, and why John appreciates aspects of it, but doesn't identify with it, we need to talk about his dad, Jack MacArthur, because Jack, more than any denomination, movement, or label, was the central influence in John's life. I can honestly say that I never, ever questioned my father's integrity my whole life, and we were very very close. What has always defined my dad to me is consistency. Uh, no one is perfect and certainly he would be the last guy to say that. But he was consistent. There was never in my entire life a time when I saw somebody different or I saw him behave in a way that was inconsistent. He was very consistent. He was exactly uh, at home and everywhere else what he was at church and in the pulpit. That, that's the, that, the legacy of that is, is monumental because where pastor's kids sometimes lose their way is because they see hypocrisy in their, in their father, which is absolutely devastating because it undermines everything. B. 
Because Jack MacArthur lived a life of integrity, his son didn't wonder if Christianity was real. He saw it form and transform his dad. Other than the gospel message itself, that integrity was the greatest gift John received from his father. It made it easy for him to pick up the baton from his dad to join the work of the ministry that had defined Jack's life. The other thing about him that comes to mind is the diligence with which he approached preaching. He would never ever go into a pulpit to preach unless he had an entire manuscript. He was prepared to the max with a manuscript. The third thing I would say, thinking about my dad, was that he loved apologetics. And much of his preaching was a defense of the truth. He, he read extensively in Christian apologetics. Millions of people have heard John MacArthur preach. His familiar voice is a mainstay of Christian radio. But if you've never done it, you've got to listen to his dad. In Jack MacArthur's day, he had a television show, he was on the radio, he pastored several prominent churches in Southern California. People knew the voice of Jack MacArthur. And the more you listen to his preaching, you start to hear the foundation that was laid for his son's ministry. We're going to play a bit of a Jack MacArthur sermon so you can hear the kind of preacher that he was. If you have your Bibles now, will you open them, please, to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Beginning at verse 12 of chapter 15, this is one of the great, glorious chapters of the New Testament. And actually, of course, the whole theme of the Apostle Paul in this chapter is the resurrection of the body. That's his thesis. Jack's sermon from 1 Corinthians 15 is titled, Is the Resurrection a Myth? These things we know, we were born, we do exist, we surely die. We walk but a very short path from the crib to the grave. From the unknown alone we enter, and alone back to the unknown we depart. Uh, to each of us there is a fixed and lonely rendezvous with death. Are we trapped? Is there no valid, authentic hope? I confess to you without hesitation, and I believe without the danger of successful contradiction, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives man his only valid hope. He was, He's a wordsmith. He was more prosaic than I am, for sure. But that's because he scripted everything. Without the bodily resurrection of our Lord, we would never have known that he was the conqueror of death. There would be no event no historical time-space fact upon which to base our hope and our own subjective experience. You see, only by his resurrection could it be demonstrated that death was conquered. Otherwise, Jesus died like everybody else. Even if he was doing an exposition, there was that evangelistic note in everything he did. He was always trying to convince the hearer 
that he was telling the saving truth. It all started, of course, with this deep conviction about the inerrancy, inspiration, authority of Scripture. He had he had the maximum confidence in Scripture. You couldn't have any more confidence than he had. And he wanted to defend that. He, he wanted to defend the Scripture. And during the, the heyday of his ministry, you have to remember that liberalism and fundamentalism were at war. And liberalism at that particular time was kind of successful. Time out. Did John MacArthur just say war? What is the fundamentalism and liberalism war he's referring to? And how is it connected to his father? I have questions. Thankfully, Dr. Marsden has answers. Fundamentalism uh, developed as a distinct movement just about 100 years ago, 1920, after World War One. The main Protestant churches, the big Protestant churches in the North were becoming more accepting of liberal doctrine, particularly in their seminaries. And so fundamentalism developed as a kind of militant evangelicalism on two fronts. One, to defend against the liberal doctrines that they thought were compromising the churches, and two, to oppose the new cultural changes and new changes in practical morality and to to try to stick to traditional evangelical prohibitions against things like dancing and card playing, drinking, smoking. Basically, vices that had been big in in evangelism uh, during the 19th century. And one of the signs of being a true evangelical was that you lived a, a more purified kind of life. 100 years ago, there was a schism in the Protestant church in America. Those who accepted the Bible and its foundational doctrines were called fundamentalists. And those skeptical of the Bible's veracity and singular authority were called theological liberals. As this battle was taking shape, leaders of the conservatives wrote a series of 90 essays called The Fundamentals. Published from 1910 to 1915, these five volumes included such essays as The Deity of Christ by Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield and A Defense of the Incarnation by G. Campbell Morgan. The whole project was financed by Lyman Stone, a devout Presbyterian and oil tycoon. He said that the authors were the best and the most loyal Bible teachers in the world. Around the same time, battles in Presbyterian circles led to the 1910 Five-Point Deliverance, which outlined the five fundamentals as biblical inspiration, the virgin birth and deity of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the authentic miracles of Christ. By the 1920s, those who believed in and were willing to fight for these essential doctrines were widely known as fundamentalists, and there was much to commend in that movement. John MacArthur talked about the beginning of the fundamentalist movement in his book, Reckless Faith. I read an excerpt from that book to John during the road trip. The timestamp on the audio says it was right about when we were passing Bakersfield 
which is probably why the audio quality is so terrible. Even microphones avoid Bakersfield. So instead of reading it again myself, I've asked Jeremy Vuolo, a producer on this podcast, to read it. That way Jeremy can be J-Mac, the star of the show, for a few minutes. We owe a massive debt of gratitude to the pioneers of the fundamentalist movement. Sadly, few Christians understand the necessity of the war they fought in the last century. If not for their bold stand, the vast majority of American churches probably would have capitulated to the influence of theological liberalism, a juggernaut that spiritually devastated Europe, the heartland of the Reformation. The original fundamentalists were American theologians and pastors who understood that some biblical doctrines are too precious to take lightly. They resolutely defended foundational Christian truths, like biblical inerrancy, the exclusivity of Christ, his resurrection, the realities of eternal life and eternal damnation, as well as human depravity. Those first fundamentalists prevailed through their unwavering commitment to God's word and refusal to negotiate on its truth. They are the reason why liberalism never overran the American church landscape and why we can still find churches today where scripture is supreme and the gospel is faithfully preached. Now you're talking about the early 1900s, the, the, when, they, when they wrote the fundamentals, you know, in the first, well, like around 1920. Uh, and the fundamentals were written directly to counter liberal points of theology, just as that quote says. And these were guys that would, would never have been a part of the fundamentalist movement that basically morphed later. They were really concerned about doctrinal fundamentals. And as that quote indicates, their legacy is incredible. And they, they were the, they threw up the barrier. They, they, they built the wall that stopped liberalism from completely triumphing over everything. Uh, and they gave birth to the, the preservation of true Christianity, true sound doctrine. John's father, Jack, believed and affirmed the fundamentals, those essential doctrines of the Christian faith that were under assault by liberalism. But if there was so much to admire in historic fundamentalism, why did John say this about his father? I don't think my dad ever called himself a fundamentalist. I, I never remember him doing that. Nor did my dad identify with what became known as fundamentalist movement in any sense. My, my dad was a fundamentalist in the purest sense of his view of scripture, but never a part of a fundamentalist movement. Here's the key to understanding what John just said. In the early 1900s, when the fundamentals were being written, and when J. Gresham Machen wrote Christianity and Liberalism, in the middle of the century, when Jack MacArthur was in the prime of his ministry, something began to change. There was a shift from fundamentalism being a series of doctrinal convictions and essential beliefs to it becoming a movement, 
a tribe within American evangelicalism, a tribe that Jack MacArthur didn't want to identify himself with. That shift began historically during a few sweltering weeks in July of 1925, when the Scopes trial and the liberal and fundamentalist divide was the top story in America. Here again is Dr. Marsden explaining what happened in Dayton, Tennessee. And the Scopes trial was about uh, anti-evolution laws, which had been successful in a, in a number of southern states and a couple of states in the north as well in the 1920s had banned the teaching of biological evolution. And so a young teacher, John Scopes, in Tennessee, uh, decided to test that uh, law, and so he openly taught uh, evo biological evolution uh, in, in his high school biology class. And so that led to a court trial, and the court trial became uh, very sensational because the most famous trial lawyer uh, of the day, Clarence Darrow, was on the side of defending Scopes. And then an even more famous uh, politician, William Jennings Bryan, who was a, a very conservative evangelical Bible believer, uh, represented the uh, prosecution in that. William Jennings Bryan and the anti-evolutionists won the trial but lost in the court of public opinion. There's a well-known 1960 movie called Inherit the Wind that's based on the Scopes trial, and it portrays Brian and all anti-evolution, Bible-believing people as backwards and unable to think. With all due respect to the court, sir, I think the right to think is very much on trial here. And it is fearfully in danger in the proceedings of this courtroom. It led to, in the mainstream liberal intellectual world, a dismissing of biblicist Christianity as being backward. So it, it, it became a kind of flashpoint in the battle, in the cultural side of that battle. Look, obviously, the fundamentalists should have defended the doctrine of creation and rejected evolution. They were right to see evolution as anti-God and anti-science. People don't believe evolution because it's scientifically accurate. They embrace it because they don't want to bow the knee to God. The problem was this. At the Scopes Monkey Trial, fundamentalists were trying to legislate a biblical worldview. In a pluralistic society, Christians are going to hold the minority position, and they need to defend that with intellectual rigor in the public square. But we must always remember that we cannot change minds or laws unless God, through the gospel, changes hearts. There's a difference between what creation scientists like Ken Ham or faithful pastors like John MacArthur do when they defend the doctrine of creation and what the Scopes monkey trial was trying to do to force all of society to reject evolution. After the Scopes trial, many fundamentalists expended extraordinary effort on prohibition, which was defeated in 1933. These two cultural flashpoints are examples of what historian David Bebbington has called enforcing the ethics of the gospel across society. 
whether it was anti-evolution or prohibition, or in later years fighting for prayer in schools or the Ten Commandments on the wall of a courtroom, the social activism of the fundamentalists backfired. And as their cultural influence was waning, fundamentalists also lost control of the mainline denominations throughout the 1920s and 30s. So, they created their own institutions. In response to this loss of cultural influence and the separation from the mainline denominations, a contingent of conservative Christians formed an organization called the National Association of Evangelicals. This organization tried to embrace both the fundamentals of the faith and cultural influence. Were they successful? I asked Nathan Busnitz that question. He is our preeminent church historian here at the Master's Seminary. Here's what he said about the NAE and fundamentalism. So in the 1920s and 30s, the mainline American denominations were all really taken over by those who were theologically liberal and progressive. Bible-believing Christians suddenly found themselves as the minority within their own denominations, and so they separated from those denominations to create new organizations, new institutions. And really, they were applying 2 Corinthians 6. They were coming out and exercising separation from the compromisers. But this led to a reputation amongst fundamentalists that they were militant and combative. And so in the 1940s, there was a younger group of fundamentalist leaders who wanted to distance themselves from that reputation. And so they started a new organization called the National Association of Evangelicals, a new movement called Neo-Evangelicalism, which was supposed to be kind of a friendlier form of fundamentalism. And they purposely distanced themselves from that older generation of fundamentalists. That really created a split within Bible-believing Christianity in America. You had the, the old guard of fundamentalists who were all about purity, but they took that purity to an extreme so that it became legalism, whereas the neo-evangelicals, or today we just call them evangelicals, were all about popularity and influence. In their quest for that influence, they actually compromised on the integrity of their message. I think you can really see the trajectory that neo-evangelicalism took when you look at the seminary that was initially founded out of the neo-evangelical movement, and that was Fuller Theological Seminary here in Pasadena. When Fuller started, it was committed to the fundamentals of the faith, but it was also committed to this pursuit of influence in the academy. They wanted to be like the Caltech of theological education. That tension between wanting to have influence and being faithful to biblical convictions eventually took Fuller in a direction that moved it away from its commitment to the fundamentals of the faith, most notably its commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture. So you see where Fuller is today, and you can really see the trajectory again that evangelicalism has taken in its quest for influence, it has often compromised on its core convictions. Fundamentalism didn't capture the nation's attention again until the 1950s, when a young man raised in the movement 
became a national sensation. Tonight I want to talk to young people primarily on counting the cost, what it cost to follow Jesus Christ. There's a price to be paid. In the year 2022, decades after the end of Graham's ministry, it's almost impossible to understand Graham's popularity. This was no D-list celebrity or reality TV star. Wherever Graham held a crusade, tens of thousands came to hear him. Every president from Dwight D. Eisenhower to George W. Bush called him a friend and advisor. He was the most recognizable Christian in America, arguably the country's most famous person. Here is Johnny Carson introducing him during a 1973 taping of NBC's Tonight Show. Billy Graham, I like to count as a good friend. Uh, he certainly needs no laborious introduction. Uh, for the past, I guess, almost two decades, he has brought uh, guidance and comfort to many, many millions of people of all faiths. Johnny Carson liked Billy Graham because everyone liked Billy Graham, except for the fundamentalists. One of the ways I put it is an evangelical is someone who likes Billy Graham. And for a while that, that really sorted out the difference between uh, fundamentalists and evangelical. They, they believed the same doctrines, but had different uh, emphasis on the degree of militancy. Here is the second flashpoint in the development of the fundamentalist movement. If the Scopes trial and prohibition put fundamentalists at odds with the broader culture and the mainline denominations, Billy Graham put the movement at odds with other conservative evangelicals. Why were fundamentalists so concerned about Billy Graham? Their criticism didn't focus on his preaching, his doctrine, or his political influence. What upset fundamentalists were the associations. They cared a lot about who was invited to his crusades. Mainline denominations, theological liberals, and Roman Catholics all participated. They also rejected what happened at the end of a Billy Graham crusade. Now you get up and come and stand here quietly and reverently and say tonight, I want Christ in my heart. I want to know that he's there. He's spoken to me tonight. He's convicted me tonight. I've been disturbed tonight. You come and stand. And after you've come and stood here, I'm going to say a word to you and have a prayer with you. And we're going to give you some literature and you can go back and join your friends. If you're with friends or relatives, they'll wait. Or if you've come in a bus, they'll wait. Just get up and come quickly right now from all over the stadium, from the choir, from everywhere. If you went forward at a Billy Graham crusade altar call to dedicate your life to Jesus Christ, you might talk to a Presbyterian, a Methodist, or a Baptist who believed in the deity of Christ. You might also talk to someone from a more liberal church who didn't. The Christianity at a Graham crusade was very ecumenical, and that concerned a lot of believers, rightfully so. Fundamentalism found its collective voice when it began to make war against Billy Graham. And that's a very important thing to think about because it was bound up with jealousy. 
as well as legitimate concerns. He was inviting the liberals back in and embracing them and sending quote-unquote converts through the invitational system back into liberal churches. And legitimately, I mean really legitimately, many of the, the guys that were part of the fundamentalist movement, they were a later generation and they were more legalistic, when they saw that erupted in fury. And so Billy Graham became the reason why the movement solidified around separation. And then it became, who are you with? Who do you speak with? What platform are you on? In the 1950s and 60s, at the height of Jack MacArthur's ministry, and as John MacArthur was coming of age in a pastor's home, Billy Graham inadvertently created two separate categories within American Christianity. There were conservative evangelicals who embraced the key doctrines of the historic Christian faith, the deity of Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel, the inerrancy of scripture, and supported Graham. They were also fundamentalists who had embraced and fought for those same foundational truths a generation ago, but now they had taken on additional cultural baggage and they were becoming known as those who opposed Billy Graham. Jack MacArthur stood at the very nexus of that intersection. His fundamentalism was, was much more independent than many fundamentalists. There wasn't a legalist bone in his body. So he always felt alienated from that. Um, he, he joined an association called the IFCA, Independent Fundamental Churches of America because of the very fact that they were independent. They had a certain commitment to doctrine without the same legalism. So he, he didn't associate with any of those people that are names connected to fundamentalism. Carl McIntyre, uh, Tom Malone, uh, Bob Jones, although he he knew Bob Jones and that they had a mutual uh, kind of connection, but he was never officially a part of that. Bob Jones became the central figure in fundamentalism. His school, Bob Jones University, became one of the movement's flagship institutions. And as John just said, Jones and other fundamentalists became legalistic in their thinking. Issues reserved for Christian liberty, such as clothing, alcohol, and music, became defining features. And that obsession with externals cultivated a culture of separatism, anti-intellectualism, and legalism. Also, this old-school evangelist at the center of the movement was not afraid to make enemies. You have people in this country, all over this country, they say they believe the Bible. Oh, yes, why certainly I believe the Bible is the way to God. I believe that. The great danger today that threatens us is not the danger of religious liberalism. That's not the danger. The danger we face today is compromise with religious liberalism on the part of people that believe the Bible. The greatest danger we face right now, we're facing because people in this country who claim to believe the Bible and hear the word and accept the word will go right along and support things contrary to the word. 
From time to time, Bob Jones would invite Jack MacArthur to speak at his school. The two respected each other, and Jack MacArthur supported his school enough to send his son there, though John didn't find the school to his liking. In a place like Bob Jones, you got to entertain yourself. So we, we did some, some highly entertaining things, uh, things like... Um, we knew there were some kids on our floor who were afraid they were going to get left in the rapture. Um, and they talked about it a lot. I don't know whether their pastor before they came there had uh, scared them, but they were afraid they were going to get left in the rapture. So so one night we we created a rapture. We got a big sheet of metal that sounded like thunder, and somebody got a trumpet and a, bo- a booming voice said, come up here. And we created panic on the floor with a fake rapture. And just to make it look good, we had everybody out of all the rooms near the rooms of the students we were trying to scare leave their beds. So when the guys came out of the room, the scared guys, they went into the next rooms to see if anybody was there, and sure, nobody was there. Great people are missing. Dozens of seats, empty. Yeah, I got a lot of demerits. Um, I, I, I got a demerits for talking to a girl in, inside a building. I, I, I got demerits uh, for um, things that I didn't even know about, like uh, not coming to an optional meeting. I got some demerits for that. Um, I, 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 I don't think that I wasn't working to get them, but I have to say the, the, the legalism was new to me and um, so alien to me that I, I didn't find myself compelled to conform to strange external things and so I would get demerits I didn't understand it I had no experience with it I had a father and a mother and a family that loved the Lord that walked with the Lord Uh, the people in my world the extension of my family the friends um, there was a real Christianity My, my grandparents the same way so I, I didn't understand this externalism. Um, I didn't understand why everybody needed to be policed. And the entire time John was there, accumulating demerits, he was hearing about the evil of one man. They made Billy Graham a big issue every single day there at Bob Jones. Every, I mean, every day. Uh, and m- many other people who they've decided were compromisers. Bob Jones Sr. and Billy Graham had been friends. Graham had even attended Jones's college for a few years. But that friendship also disintegrated in 1957 while John was at Bob Jones because of Graham's Madison Square Garden Crusade, where he first invited liberal churches to participate. After that, any association with Graham would remove you from the good graces of Bob Jones and the fundamentalist movement. And that is exactly what happened to Jack MacArthur. Bob Jones had two people in his life. The people that agreed with him and the people he tried to undermine. Those are the only two kinds of people. You either agreed with him or you were a target. And my dad was asked by Bob Jones to speak there but eventually, Bob Jones turned on my father and made all kinds of false accusations against my dad. 
and it had to do it started because my dad showed a Billy Graham film or somebody in the church showed a Billy Graham film in our church that was the kiss of death so Bob Jones went after my father as a compromiser and all of that so fundamentalism basically turned on him and that's when he yanked me out of the environment of Bob Jones said you can't stay there they'll poison you and they'll separate you from me and John was happy to leave because he didn't fit in he's a Southern California kid a multi-sport jock going to a school that had no intercollegiate athletics and John got out of there just in time. A few years later, Bob Jones and the fundamentalist movement would commit their most egregious act of extra-biblical sin. On Easter Sunday in the year 1960, not long after John left Bob Jones, the school's founder preached a message titled, Is Segregation Scriptural? Someone has scrubbed the sermon audio from the internet, but you can still read the transcript. It's awful, full of terrible hermeneutics, revisionist history, and blatant racism. At one point, Jones said this, if we would just listen to the word of God and not try to overthrow God's established order, we would not have any trouble. God never meant for America to be a melting pot to rub the line between the nations. That was not God's purpose for this nation. When someone goes to overthrowing his established order and goes around preaching pious sermons about it, that makes me sick for a man to stand up and preach pious sermons in this country and talk about rubbing out the line between the races. I say it makes me sick. There were 4,000 students when I was there. There wasn't one single black person in the school. They were not allowed. They weren't allowed. Um, this is hardline segregation. Um, there were things said about black people that I wouldn't even repeat because it would do no good to repeat them, but they were... Um, untrue to put it mildly they were demeaning they were slanderous um, this was such a serious issue um, at that time but they felt they could take that kind of stand and survive in the south this this is real racism and real racism illegitimately defended by using the Bible. So I just, I didn't understand it. Bob Jones University did not admit black students until the 1970s. Then, for an inexplicable 30 years, interracial dating was prohibited. Among a thousand other prohibitions, this was the most wicked. It wasn't lifted until the year 2000 when Bob Jones III dropped it after first defending it on CNN's Larry King Live show. The thing I'm trying to find right. out why you have the yeah. rule. We have the rule because it was a part of a bigger, it was a, 
it wasn't the rule itself. We, 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 we can't point to a verse in the Bible that says you shouldn't date or marry in a can't back it up. No, we can't back it up with a verse in the Bible. We never have tried to. We never have tried to do that. But we said there is a principle here, an overriding principle of the one world government. Let me, let me tell you how insignificant this is. <laughs> students never hear it preached. There have been four, five, six generations of students that graduated from there have never heard this preached in our chapel or taught in our school. It, to us, it's but the it's most... But it's a rule, though. They it know is they a rule. Can. It is. But it's the most insignificant thing. But now... We're being defined as a racist school. I mean, that's all the media talks well, uh, about. Partly, dur during the era, you know, the era of segregation, segregationists said, well, we're not racist. We just think the races should be apart. They should mm -hmm. be treated equally, but not together. And that was regarded as a kind of a compound. Mm -hmm. well, maybe, I mean, you could change that. You think it's a stretch, maybe. In other words, have you given thought to maybe that's taking it too far? down to two people into a whole one-world concept. You know, I don't think it's taking it too far, but I can tell you this. We don't have to have that rule. In fact, as of today, we've dropped the rule. In 2008, the school issued a fascinating and long overdue apology, saying, for far too long, we allowed institutional policies regarding race to be shaped more directly by the segregationist ethos of American culture than by the principles and precepts of scripture. We conform to the culture rather than providing a clear Christian counterpoint to it. In so doing, we failed to accurately represent the Lord and to fulfill the commandment to love others as ourselves. For these failures, we are profoundly sorry. A few years after Bob Jones Sr.'s 1960 defense of segregation, John was traveling around the South, preaching in African-American churches. He was in Mississippi at an African-American church the night Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Clearly, John didn't fit the culture at BJU. And neither he nor his father would go along with the contentiousness, legalism, and racism of many within the fundamentalist movement. It wasn't too long after I had finished there when I was in seminary that I started going back to the South, and the only places I ever went were into black communities. And I went back there year after year after year, and I, I went to all the black high schools, and I preached the gospel, and we had a little music group that did some music, and then we'd go play uh, play basketball with the guys, and we'd go out on the football field with the guys because we, we were former athletes. And um, I actually had to sit in a cell in uh, Mendenhall, Mississippi, because I was arrested by the local sheriff for, quote, stirring up the blacks, um, which, of course, wasn't true. We were just preaching the gospel. By the 1960s, fundamentalists across the South had become so obsessed with cultural issues, they had embraced an anti-biblical ideology. And based on his experience at Bob Jones and across the South, I asked John to exegete the word fundamental. Here is what he said. Fundamental is... No fun, too much damn, and not enough mental. It was no fun because it, it was so burdensome. It was, it was like the Pharisees 
tying burdens on, on people's backs. It was all about how you externally conducted yourself and how you dressed and how you talked and who you connected with and who you associated with and where you went and what you did. So there was an utter absence of joy in the um, overly sober-mindedness that came along with fundamentalism because it was so critical. It was critical of everybody who didn't toe the line. Too much damn. There was very little effort to encourage people. There was very little effort to build people up in the faith. There was, um, there was missing a lot of grace and mercy and tenderness and compassion and kindness and humility in preaching that recognized um, that you know you had to deal with people's hearts and you, you, you had to move them along with kindness and grace and patience. There was, it was, it was far too black and white and you were not considered a fundamentalist unless you hammered on people about things. And then the last one, not enough mental. Uh, it, you know, I wouldn't want to sit in judgment necessarily on the intellectual capability of fundamentalists, but there was no effort made to get into the depth of Scripture theologically. And here's what John said when he applied that definition of the fundamentalist movement to the specific circumstances of the 1950s and 60s that led the MacArthur men to reject fundamentalism. I was in the middle of it at Bob Jones, and, and, and I've seen it through, through all the years. It's... Um, it's a false paradigm of sanctification. For example, Bob Jones was condemning everybody who was not a fundamentalist. And there were things in Bob Jones Jr.'s life that were vile and serious transgressions, epic transgressions, inconsistencies. But that's what Fundamentalism does in the sense of legalism. Legalism cannot restrain the flesh. So if you're trying to be sanctified by controlling the outside, the, the flesh is just enraged. So what I saw was hypocrisy everywhere in fundamentalism. Just everywhere. They demanded one thing, and they basically lived another. It was Phariseeism, and that's what my dad saw as well. It was all about external separation and relationships and certain behaviors and you know certain things you didn't do. And I, I remember in the early years at Grace Church, people were commenting on whether I had a haircut. People denounced Grace Church because we had a guy play a guitar, because women wore pants. Uh, that, that's where it morphed to, and all of that. Uh, that, that was never my dad, never. He, his, his spiritual life was internal. It was in his heart. That's where his integrity came from. When John MacArthur talks about his past, his experiences with fundamentalism, his understanding of his theological and Christian heritage, he can't help but pivot back 
to his father. Jack MacArthur was such a deep influence on John because of his integrity, his passion for ministry, and because of his loyalty. Jack MacArthur wasn't loyal to a denomination, a man, or a movement. He had a singular devotion to Christ and his word. John watched his dad live out that allegiance in his personal life and in his ministry. When he would travel around locally to preach in different places, he would take me with him. And I can remember as a little kid just kind of sitting in the second row while he preached. And those were really wonderful times to, to just drive together and, um, and be there to listen to him preach and watch how people appreciated him. Um, so I have some vivid memories of that. As we continued talking about the ministry of John's father, now entering California's Central Valley, we listened to a few minutes of the Jack MacArthur sermon you've already heard. Is the resurrection a myth? A spiritual resurrection of Jesus Christ is an absurdity. It's a contradiction. Certainly, the soul of our Lord Jesus Christ was in the place of the dead, but it did not cease to exist. If indeed the perpendicular eye within the man is the soul that never dies, then what we're talking about is the death of the body. And thus it was his body that was brought back to life. And without the bodily resurrection, the whole evangelical testimony is non-existent. Without the bodily resurrection of our Lord, we would never have known that he was the conqueror of death. There would be no event, no historical time-space fact upon which to base our hope and our own subjective experience. You see, only by his resurrection could it be demonstrated that death was conquered. Otherwise, Jesus died like everybody else. There's an intensity in his preaching. There's a... Um that I see as an honesty in his preaching. This is not, this is something that matters profoundly to him for you to get this. This is not just going through the motions. There, there's souls at stake here. By the time we reached the Central Valley, I felt like I understood something simple yet profound about John MacArthur's identity and his convictions his spiritual heritage. Wikipedia will call him a reformed Protestant. Political surveys will peg him as an evangelical. Criswell would still insist that he's a Baptist. And Twitter will scream fundamentalist. Those kind of identities don't matter much to MacArthur. What matters to him is Christ and his word. The convictions of John MacArthur the foundational beliefs that drive him each and every day were not shaped by a movement. They were shaped by a man, his dad, who taught him that truth is all that matters. As I have often said, the most important thing, the most important reality is divine truth, divine truth. It is the one great essential. 
The best place that you can ever be is under the hearing of the truth of God. Truth is the priority. And the battle for the Bible is the battle for the truth. That's what energizes me every day of my life. We speak the truth. We think on the truth. We desire the truth. We manifest the truth. We hear the truth. We obey the truth. Most comprehensively, we walk in the truth. That is to say, we conduct our lives in the realm of the truth. It determines how we think and how we speak and how we act. In nearly every conversation I've ever had with John MacArthur, that conviction comes out. That's been the constant theme in every sermon and every decade, the centrality of truth. It's his singular conviction. Perhaps that's why he doesn't fit neatly into any of these movements that have come and gone. Certainly, John learns from them, but he is a man shaped by the scriptures. May that be true of all of us. May we see ourselves not primarily as evangelicals or part of a denomination or fundamentalists or Protestants, but as disciples of Jesus Christ, the one who identified himself as the way, the life, and the truth. May that drive us, just as MacArthur drove me along that California highway. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. In our second episode, we're going to take a trip across the pond to central London to see how a man that John never met became one of his dearest friends. That's next time on The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. The Entrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Our editor is Cody Signore, who always brings these stories to life in an extraordinary way. Special thanks to Dr. George Marsden for his contribution and his many wonderful books, and for John and Patricia MacArthur for allowing me to tag along on that road trip. One final thing, if you enjoyed Season 1 of the podcast and are looking forward to the rest of Season 2, consider liking our podcast or writing a review. That helps others find this show. For more information about the MacArthur Center, go to MacArthurCenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, visit tms.edu. ATD, out. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. 